0: Hi everyone, it's Grace Emmett here. I'm just sneaking on at the beginning of this episode to let you know about a project I'm working on called Reimagining Paul, Apostolic Portraits of Masculinity. Uh, Some of you will know that my work tends to focus on Paul's letters and masculinity, thinking about how Paul presents himself uh, and how that might interact with norms of gender in the ancient world and also today. And this project is a public engagement project that's going to have an exhibition that tours around the UK. And I'm looking with an artist to collaborate with who will help me work up weird and wonderful depictions of Paul based on different texts uh, where he describes himself, So, for example, where he talks about being a mother giving birth to the Galatians or uh, talking about his disabled body. Really excited to uh, visualise some of that and work with someone to bring life to some of the research I've been doing. So I would love some help from the Two Cities family uh, to find the right person to work with on this. It might be you, uh, you might be an artist of any who works in any medium, or you might know somebody and think they'd be perfect for this, uh, but would love for your help spreading the word. We'll put a link to all the details in the episode description, Um, so please do forward on to anyone who you think might be a good fit, Uh, and deadline for proposals is the 11th of March. Anyway, that's enough from me. Here's the episode.
1: Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 108. On today's episode, we're talking about the Pharisees and anti-Judaism with Professor Amy Jill Levine. Professor Amy Jill Levine is Rabbi Stanley M. Kessler, Distinguished Professor of New Testament Studies and Jewish Studies at Hartford Seminary, as well as University Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies Emerita, Mary Jane Worthen Professor of Jewish Studies Emerita, and Professor of New Testament Studies Emerita at Vanderbilt University. She's also the co-editor of a recent volume published by Eerdmans called The Pharisees which we discuss in our episode today. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Chris Porter, Dr. Logan Williams, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So carrying on our conversation on anti-Judaism within Christianity, we turn to talk about the Pharisees, which is just a ripe area of conversation in this regard. And it was just a blast to have Dr. Amy Jill Levine on this pod today. So Logan, how about you start us off? What were some of your takeaways from our conversation with Dr. Levine?
2: Well, yeah, I think one of my
1: favorite uh, things she she talked
2: about was uh, how in many instances, Jesus is more stringent than the Pharisees in his interpretation of Torah and application of Torah. And this contrasts with the the kind of popular caricature that the problem that Jesus has with the Pharisees is that they're just far too obsessive with rules. One of my favorite aspects of the conversation was the uh, tips and tricks that Dr. Levine offers for preachers on how to not not preach on the Pharisees. So you have that to look forward to.
1: And Chris, what were some of your thoughts?
3: Yeah, I I really enjoyed uh, our conversation about labeling and how uh, so much of the animus and so much of the, even the construct of Pharisee is generated from outgroup labelling. So one group labelling another as Pharisee in order to be able to categorise and then often denigrate them. And how this actually takes place in in a wide variety of settings, uh, not just with Pharisees, but uh, with other groups in the ancient world. And and indeed how that then flows its way out into our modern society. One thing I really appreciated was how uh, AJ has a great grasp on both the ancient world uh, and also its implications for the modern.
1: All right, and here's our conversation with Dr. Amy Jill Levine. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Levine.
4: I'm delighted to be with you, but I wish you would just call me AJ because it makes it much easier then to have a conversation among equals.
1: Well AJ thank you so much for joining us. I thought as a, as a way to start this conversation about the Pharisees I'd like to think about how even before Christians pick up their Bibles and start reading it, we're kind of ingrained with this idea that Pharisees are bad, they're awful people, right? I'm thinking especially of this children's song that I grew up with, I just wanna be a sheep. Uh, I don't know if you know it, but it says over and over again, I just wanna be a sheep. And what I don't wanna be is I don't wanna be a Sadducee cause they're sad, you see, and they do that thing with the hand. And I don't wanna be a Pharisee cause they're not fair. You see. And I'm wondering if you could help us at the outset to understand how actually what's unfair is the representation of Pharisees as explicated in this children's song. You
4: yeah, well, I would start by saying that Christian children should have better career aspirations because if all you want to do is become a sheep, it's, it's not saying very much. Um, sheep are not the brightest of the creatures that the good God made. Yes, I've actually written about this because I've had students quoting the same song. And there are others that are equally as bad, but the tunes are not quite as catchy. Um, so here's what happened. There are wonderful Pharisees, or relatively wonderful Pharisees in the New Testament. The only Pharisee from whom we've got written records is Paul of Tarsus, who in Philippians, when he talks about as to the law of Pharisee and under the law blameless, he's trotting out that credential, like saying, you know, I got a PhD from Duke, or you know, I'm, I'm like the head of whoever. I'm terrific. So Paul's certainly not bashing that Pharisaic identity. Um, it, we have Nicodemus who's buddy with Joseph of Arimathea, and he winds up speaking with Jesus and more or less getting with the program. You're never sure at the end if he does, but he's doing pretty well. Um, You've got Gamaliel in Acts chapter five, who winds up supporting Peter and John and saying, you really ought to let him out of prison. I'm not sure if Gamaliel's analogy of Jesus with some of these revolutionary leaders is a great analogy, but at least he seems to come off okay. But we also see, as we go through the Gospels, as as Matthew and Luke take their mark and source, that they begin to put in Pharisees where Mark doesn't have them. And where Mark, for example, has this lovely scribe in Mark 12 who comes up to Jesus and says, you've been given some great answers. Can you tell me what commandment's the greatest? Which, given that there are 613 commandments, is a very good question. Um, And when Jesus comes up with love of God and love of neighbor, the scribe goes, fabulous answer. But what happens is when that story comes into Matthew, it's no longer a scribe, it's now a Pharisee. The Pharisee's not enamored of Jesus, and he's not admiring his teachings. Matthew says he's there to test him, and testing is what Satan does. Um, And the whole thing has been recast to make this Pharisee, who's not in the original at all, look bad. And by the time they float into Luke's gospel, Luke calls them lovers of money, and they're continually opposing Jesus. But when we look at what other people say about Pharisees in the first century, lovers of money is certainly not that. Josephus, who's not a Pharisee but a priest, complains about the people listening to the Pharisees rather than the priest. And he admits that one of the reasons they listen to Pharisees is because Pharisees are not being elitist and they're not being apart from the people. They like the simple life and they walk the walk as well as talking the talk. So the New Testament Starts with some good stuff like Paul, but then as the church began to develop, particularly after the year 70, when the priesthood in Judaism no longer has any sort of authority because the temple has been destroyed and the Pharisees are there already out among the people, they're the ones picking up the pieces and the early followers of Jesus within the Jewish community said, wait a minute, these are our major rivals. And the way people define themselves very often is is you pick somebody who's really close to you. And say, that's not who we are. It's like Baptist talking to Methodists or Baptist talking to other Baptists, for that matter. The Pharisees get an increasingly negative press. And at the same time, the Jewish community comes to understand the Pharisees as somehow related to rabbinic literature. Because stuff that the Pharisees are concerned about in the first century, like purity, for example, um, is the same thing that the rabbis are concerned about in, in the third century. So the more the church talks about the Pharisees as representing all Jews who are money-loving, um, self-righteous hypocrites, the more Jews are saying, wait a minute, these are our spiritual ancestors who walked the walk, talked the talk, and held us together. So we have completely different memories of these folks.
3: I think that's a great point, that there is a lot to say about the Pharisees. And uh, recently, uh, your. Uh, new edited volume um, with Edmonds has come out on the Pharisees. Do you want to take us on a tour of that project and of uh, the volume itself?
4: Yeah. Um, so the book is called the Pharisees. It's not a terribly original title uh, published by Erdman's in 2021. Um, it's co-edited by the myself and a fellow named Joseph Sievers, who was the major figure behind it. I mean, Joseph did so much work on this. The suggestion originally came from Rabbi Rabbi David Rosen, who represents the American Jewish Committee, who suggested to his colleagues in Rome, particularly at the Vatican, that it might be a good idea to have a conference on the Pharisees to say, what what exactly do we know? Um, And since I was in residence teaching at the Pontifical Biblical Institute at the time, Joseph Severs, who became the point person for this, asked me if I would help organize the conference. And then later, after the papers came in, asked if I would help edit the volume, which I was happy to do. So we have this fabulous conference, um, international scholars looking at what do we know about the Pharisees? Because if if the only Pharisee from whom we have records is Paul, then you have to kind of quadrangulate, you know, what do the rabbis say and can you work your way backwards? What do the Dead Sea Scrolls say uh, about a group called Seekers After Smooth Things? In other words, they make things too easy for everybody, um, as opposed to Matthew saying they bind up burdens on everybody and they make things too hard. Um, What do we know from Josephus? Is there anything that we can tell, for example, about purity practices from archaeology? What did the church fathers say about these folks? And so on. So we gathered this extraordinary group of scholars from Germany, from Israel, from the United States, from Canada, from the UK, and so on, plus a number of Italians, um, to work on this volume. We debated and we discussed and then we edited And in the volume, we look not only at the primary sources, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the rabbis, and so on, but we also look at how Pharisees have been understood over time. So there's a brilliant article about how Luther and Calvin looked at Pharisees, and and it's not always quite as as awful as one might have imagined. Um, We look at Pharisees on film. So I know you've spoken with Adele Reinhardt, since she contributed that article. Uh, Pharisees, as they've changed over time in the Oberammergau Passion Play. Uh, my colleague, Philip Cunningham at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, contributed an article about how Pharisees show up in Christian textbooks. So along with singing, I don't—I just want to be a sheep, you know, what are they learning in the classroom? I did an article on the Pharisees and how they show up in sermons, which is really pretty awful. Um, and then there were theologians talking about what do we do today about this? So it's kind of one-stop shopping on the Pharisees. Do we, do we all agree? No, but I think we've actually made a substantial amount of progress by having these different arguments. Oh, and, and the okay. appendix is by the Pope, by the way. For this conference, we got a papal audience, which is fabulous. Um, and the Pope has to give a speech, because when you get a papal audience, the Pope has to give a speech to the assembled. Uh, but the Pope doesn't write the Pope's speeches. I mean, the assembled people write the speech, and then the Pope determines what he will or will not say. So it's sort of like getting your outline drafted. Um, And Joseph Seavers and I um, and one other colleague at the um, Pontifical Biblical Institute did the draft of the Pope's speech, which, according to my husband, makes me the Holy Ghost writer, which I think is kind of funny. Um, And the Pope... I think very wisely said that when negative images of Pharisees are brought forward, particularly when people can't make a distinction between Pharisee and Jew, that all those negative images do is wind up reinforcing anti-Judaism. And if we looked at the New Testament closely and we looked at Pharisaic history closely, we would see that the Pharisees, like Nicodemus, like Gamaliel, like Paul, um, have an enormous amount to offer, and we need to get rid of some of this negative stereotyping that has attached to them.
2: Okay, so, AJ, if you were to have to explain to somebody what a Pharisee was in the first century in one minute, uh, what would you say? Who were they? What made what made somebody a Pharisee?
4: Well, unlike the priesthood, which is an inherited role in Judaism, if your father's a priest, you're a priest. uh, Pharisees are a lay led group. Um, We do not see them specifically interpreting Scripture in the New Testament, but they come around to do that. They are known for having something called the tradition of the elders, so they have a certain way of understanding how Torah should be interpreted. And what they're interested in doing, as far as we can tell from Josephus and perhaps from Paul, certainly from the Dead Sea Scrolls and the rabbis, um, is they're actually trying to make the law more livable. Taking, Taking the fact that you have a text that's like the Torah, that's written hundreds, if not thousands of years before, and what does it mean when you bring it forward? They're also very much interested in taking the sanctity that you find in the temple and the sanctity that's associated with the priesthood and saying, well, according to Torah, all of Israel is a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. So we're going to take some of those priestly practices that are located in the temple and we're going to extend them to the people as a whole. And that's why, for example, they're concerned about hand washing. And who knew after COVID, it turns out they're right. Right. Um, because the priest would wash his hands before approaching the sacrificial element. So now you do that before you have dinner. They're interested in, in statuses of ritual purity. Not that being impure was bad. Everybody's impure at some point or another. Uh, but you can up that ritual purity idea. And that that's a way of, um, it's ancient Jewish multiculturalism. Questions of purity, questions of diet. Questions of hand washing are all ways that Jews can affirm their priestly identity uh, in a, a generally Roman world, which is more interested in assimilation. Um, When they do get um, arguments against them that you can find in the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, a text called 4QMMT, um, the people writing the Dead Sea Scrolls, I mean, they're really rigorous about stuff. And they're saying about these Pharisees, you guys, you're just making things too easy and you're making things easy for the laity. And you're kind of cutting back on all this rigor that we have out here at Qumran. In the Mishnah, um, in Mishnah Udayim, um, which deals with hand washing and things like that, um, the Sadducees complain about the Pharisees, right? You, you, know, you say this is holy, but you don't say that is holy. And what the Pharisees are doing is talking about how the laity function rather than how the priesthood functions. And the Sadducees, who are actually the more conservative of the two movements for the most part, Tend to say, wait a minute, we want a more conservative view, and and the Pharisees are going, nope. It's really what human beings are doing, and how do we help human beings better live out that law? Um, There are a number of people who would argue that the word Pharisee means separated from the Hebrew parush, that can mean separated The very first article, it's a brilliant article, in the volume on Pharisees is by Craig Morrison. He's a Carmelite from Canada who teaches in Rome. And he just went through all the lexicons, including what the word means in Syriac and what it means in Aramaic. And the fact is, we don't know where the name Pharisee comes from. The same root parush can mean interpreter. And even if it does mean somebody who's separated, then you have to figure out separated from what? Uh, False teaching, impurity. Sin. They're certainly not separated from the people because they're popular teachers. So, how do you know a Pharisee if you see one? Probably because they'd be teaching among the masses. They're not doing it for money or for glory, but they're doing it to help their fellow Jews better be better Jews and better follow the Torah in a way that makes sense to them in their own first century environment rather than being uh, pretending that they're a group of people living in the wilderness surrounding a, ta- a portable tabernacle.
2: Uh, on the on the name, the earliest source I can think of but explicitly tries to argue that uh, Pharisee comes from Parish. Uh, the Aram Aramaic in Hebrew uh, is Epiphanias Panarion, where he says uh, it, the the name Pharisee comes from the word separate, which is, of course is the word the the, the word in in, in in the in, the, in Targum Ankalos which translates lehavdil, the. God separating this and separating that and separating that. Sure, um, but, but of that course is, it could be. A, but you could don't be a, know. It could be a false etymology, right? I mean, who knows what I mean, Epiphanius is? Centuries removed uh, from the first century, so it's, it's hard. Right, to trust you don't
4: one. know, and and uh, the uh, rabbis yeah. in the early material don't self-identify as Pharisees. They self-identify as sages, and they talk about their previous generation as, as the 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 early holy ones, uh, the Rishonim Hasadim, right? Um, but it's only when you get into the Middle Ages that the Jewish sources themselves start thinking, oh, we're somehow connected with Pharisees. Uh, and that's about the time when the Christians are starting to figure this out as well. So even how Jews and Christians have looked at Pharisees over time, that's really hard. So it, you begin to get a real strong connection with Yosippon, and that's in the Middle Ages. Today, it's, it's pretty normative to think Pharisee Jew. Uh, thanks, Ajay. I, I,
3: I really think that there's, there's a difference between... Um people identifying as, as a category, in this case, Pharisee, and then those being identified externally as Pharisee. And there's, um, from a, a social sciences perspective, you know, how we do that is, is actually quite a, a significant challenge because in order to identify a group as, as something, or as someone as part of a group, you, you need to both have similarity and difference. So in a lot of the time when we look at our New Testament text, especially we see Pharisee as set up against Sadducee, or you see Pharisee as set up against the Christ followers. Interested in, in that etymology construction, uh, you, you said that uh, it's only really when it gets to the medieval period that Jewish groups start identi- self-identifying with these ancient Pharisees. Interested in how that trajectory has worked worked itself out. And, it's, and, and, it's, and the same in the converse, because the, the notion of Pharisee is used so much especially in the fourth gospel, which is my area as a foil for constructs of the nascent Christ following community.
4: Yeah. So let's talk about names then that's, that's helpful. Um, What happens is the new Testament will, will start off with earlier sources, making it very clear that Pharisees are a particular group and they are not Sadducees. The book of Acts makes it clear that Pharisees and Sadducees disagree on resurrection of the dead and angels Josephus talks about the distinction regarding fate and free will. And by the way, Josephus doesn't have all that much to say about Pharisees. If you put all of the works of Josephus together, it's a tiny little part, but it seems to be the only part that my Christian friends tend to read because um, it gets you sort of to Jesus. Matthew combines Pharisees and Sadducees where Mark does not. So Matthew's already in the process of bringing them together. And what John does um, is merge all these Jewish groups. John doesn't have Sadducees, but John makes the Pharisees into the Jews. So that by the time you get to the end of the Gospel of John, you've got the Jews over here, and then you've got the Jesus people on here, and, and those are your two distinctions. When it comes to naming, various groups pick up their names from other people um, and would never so self-identify. Um, so we don't know if Pharisees originally called themselves Pharisees. They might have been called that by others in the same way that Acts suggest that Christians were called Christians by others. Right. Protestants didn't call themselves Protestants. That's a Catholic term. But, you know, the label stuck. I don't think Quakers were thrilled with being called Quakers. they are better labels you can get. But then when you do get a moniker, a label that sticks, you very often then adapt your identity to that particular label. All groups define themselves over against other groups. And you can do that either benevolently or malevolently. Oh, that's a really good idea. Let us borrow that and acknowledge or I think I want that, but I'm going to claim it. And if I claim it, you can't have it. And the early followers of Jesus in this process of self-identification had to figure out what they were going to take from their Jewish antecedents and indeed what they were going to take from their pagan antecedents and then figure out, well, what do we do with those people who are left? So Pharisee, which was already in the tradition, just simply became a handy synonym for Jew. And in John, they are merged together so much that you can't tell the difference. And by the time you get to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, when Matthew strategically uses the word Jew as, oh, and the, the Jews are the ones who believe that the disciples stole the body. All those Jewish groups have all been merged into one at that point.
2: Uh, you mentioned already um, 4QMT and Mishni What's What's curious, I think, about those texts that 4QMT, of course, accuses the Pharisees of being uh, more lenient and not stringent, right? And because the Mishnah has this uh, paradigm of <clears throat> judging certain d- different kinds of um, rulings, uh, halakhic rulings as stringent or more, more stringent or more lenient. In popular Christian imagination, the Pharisees are, of course, interpreted as people who are just obsessively stringent about everything. And of course, Jesus comes to say, "Yo, yeah, well, chill out and that stuff really matters anyways. Uh, <laughs> so in terms of... Um, you know, Jesus uh, critiquing the Pharisees, this is not some kind of, you know, he's, he's not alone in doing this, right? There were other Jews at the time. Um, of course, at least uh, we have from Dead Sea Scrolls primary evidence uh, and, of course, indirect evidence of Mission 8 IM4, um, which probably at least Yarier Fustenberg argues that it does go back to the first century. Um, so, how would you kind of locate Jesus's criticism to the Pharisees uh, amongst intersectarian polemic in the first century in Judaism? And um, how can that help reframe uh, or critique this kind of caricature that, of course, Jesus just comes to tell them to stop being so stringent and obsessed with laws that don't
4: really matter? Yeah. Um, And part of that that construct of the, you know, Jesus, love God, love neighbor, be happy. And that's that's the end of it, as opposed to these Pharisees with all these different rules. I mean, a lot of that comes from Luther, um, who's going to set up a law grace dichotomy and, and then I think misread Paul. Um, and then we get this idea of Jesus as this, this grand liberal, or to use today's term, radical, because every, if you're radical, you're good somehow, right? And this is said to upper middle class people who, you know, who don't want to shake up the system at all. Um, I think Jesus is actually remarkably stringent about particular practices, particularly Torah. Um, he's much closer to the, um, to the Sadducees on adultery. Like, you know, the Sadducees are, and some of the more conservative Pharisees, you can only get divorced in cases of adultery. And Jesus, like at least in Mark and, and Luke, you can't get divorced at all. And the rabbis are going to sort of a no fault system. When it comes to law, I think Jesus makes Torah more rigorous rather than less. But people don't like that because they don't want to follow law. And Jesus is just too hard, right? The law says, don't commit murder. He says, don't be angry. That's harder. The law says, don't commit adultery. He says, don't think about it. That's harder. So we don't want a Jesus who demands stuff from us that we don't want to do because we're perfectly comfortable with the the Christian majority status quo. So rather than rather than take seriously what Jesus says far too often, it's just easier for the pastor or the priest to get up and say, don't be like those Sadducees who are going to stick in the mud and ultra conservative and can't accept a new idea and can't progress. Because it's easier to, to say at the end of the church service, oh, thank God we're not like the Pharisees. Than it is to say, boy, maybe I ought to be tithing. So, this negative view of Pharisee is just remarkably utilitarian. And I think it was in the first century as well. Mm-hmm. If you've got a rival group that seems to be doing really well, say anything you want about them that's going to make them look horrible. Some of my friends say, well, you know, surely some of the Pharisees were hypocrites, and surely some of the Pharisees were money loving. Right, I'm just inclined to cite our previous president. You know, surely some of those Mexicans were rapists and murderers, but I'm sure the, the other ones are nice people. I mean, that's not a helpful argument. This is ad hominem insulting, and it's not needed. But to go back to Chris's point, it's part of that sociological self-definition. That's how people do things. You insult, and back then they knew how to insult. Right, they were all masters at it. Would Jesus have insulted some Pharisees, and would they have insulted him back? I think so. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls certainly have not nice things to say about the people who are their rivals, like the folks who are running the temple or the secrets after smooth things. The problem is that the New Testament, Jesus' words are repackaged into texts which are eventually become the canon of the Gentile church. So instead of hearing one Jew arguing with another, which would be perfectly normative, um people in the churches are hearing Jesus argue against the Jews and don't, for the most part, take those arguments as applicable to them. They simply take it as look at how awful those Pharisees are, and by the way, we probably ought to stay away from synagogues or any other place where there were Jews.
2: So the intersectarian, what was originally an intersectarian polemic now becomes a kind of interreligious uh, polemic where instead of yeah,
4: if you can even yeah. use the word sectarian, I mean, sectarian presumes there's some sort of norm. Over against which the sect departs, but I'm not sure there's a norm per se in Second Temple Judaism. There Mm. aren't that many Pharisees, even using Josephus's inflated numbers. So, you know, let's say there are 8,000. Among how many million? Right. Um, Mm. So I don't think it's likely you're going to be, you know, you're walking around the streets of Capernaum. Oh, look, it's the Pharisees, you know, coming out of the club. I don't think they're there. There aren't Mm. that many of them, but they have enough outreach and enough influence that people find them worth listening
2: to. And the result of your interpretation of Matthew 5, law says don't murder, don't be angry, is that actually Jesus is, is going with the Mahmir interpretation, the, uh, uh, like the harder, the more stringent interpretation the over harder. against his presumed uh, uh, audience. So actually we find Jesus being the one who's actually <laughs> accusing everyone else of being too lenient, uh, which is ironic given kind of like popular Christian readings of, of Jesus versus the Pharisee.
4: It, it is kind of funny. And then you have, similar to this, questions of misunderstanding of Paul, Paul the Pharisee. In our Pharisees collection, Paula Fredrickson wrote the book, wrote the article on Paul, and what she concludes is that when Paul uh, signs on to this messianic project, he doesn't cease being a Pharisee. She describes it as he became a better Pharisee. He doesn't give up his identity as a Jew. He doesn't give up his identity as a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Why should we see him giving up his identity as a Pharisee? He's just a Pharisee who believes that the Messiah has come.
3: On the question of naming, if a Pharisee is simply someone who could be identified externally as someone who is is a lay person, engaged in teaching, people go and listen to them, has interpretations of the law, then surely one of the quintessential portrayed as such quintessential Pharisees for us on that on those grounds is Jesus
4: why would you limit legal interpretation just to Pharisees lots of people care about how do I best live out the life under the covenant under under what we learned at Mount Sinai how do I best live that out because all laws have to be interpreted. And the rabbis, in fact, talk about arguments for the sake of heaven, like the arguments between Hillel and Shammai, two famous um, people in rabbinic tradition who eventually get grandfathered into the Pharisaic movement, although they're not from the rabbis called Pharisees. Um, So you argue about this stuff. And when Jesus engages with his fellow Jews in arguing about what do you do on the Sabbath and do you wash your hands, that puts him right in the middle of Torah obedience, because you don't, unless you're a member of a debate club, you don't argue about something in which you've got no investment. But most of those laws were not applicable to Paul's converts, to those Gentiles who were joining the the movement. Can't call it Christian, that would be anachronistic, talking about labels. Um, This movement, whatever you wanna call it, these Jesus people. um, Because those laws were substantially designed to keep Jews distinct in the world. So for Paul, as I understand Paul, the Jews remain Jews, the Gentiles remain Gentiles. But everybody's worshiping the God of Israel um, and the Jews, uh, the Gentiles give up worshiping their pagan gods, but they don't keep kosher. They don't have to worry about some of this purity concern, although there were purity concerns in the broader Gentile world. It's not clear that Paul expects his followers to be honoring the Sabbath and keep it keeping it holy. So that's what Jews do. Gentiles do their own thing. And then you wind up with a system that in the United States we would call separate but equal. And we know that doesn't work. And it didn't work for the church either.
1: So, in light of some of this conversation about polemics i'm curious if you would like to bring in your reading of luke 18 here and whether or not this may be a a polemical jab against the pharisees of course you wrote that book short stories by jesus on the parables of jesus wondering if you could fold some of that into this conversation about this very prominent pharisee who seems to be showed up by a tax collector who is you know in cahoots with rome and yet goes home justified at the end i want to tell us some of your thoughts about that parable
4: i do have a chapter on this particular parable which i find fascinating i don't think it's a polemic on the lips of jesus i think mm. it's a polemic in luke's gospel right right so you got two fellows going up to the temple to pray one a pharisee one the other a tax collector um it has nothing to do with ritual purity first point because you can be a sinner and be ritually pure and in turn you could be like a high you know it could be a a ritually pure like a high priest, but still be a sinner, right? These are not the same register. Uh, and tax collector, and then there's a problem of how you want to translate that verse. So some translations read standing by himself, and other translations read praying, praying to himself uh, or praying about himself, which I think is an ungenerous reading of the Greek. He's just standing off to the side. And he says, You know, th- I thank you, God, which is a nice way of starting a prayer. Right. Um, And then he goes on to compare himself positively to other people that you have not made me like these, you know, adulterers or, you know, even like that, their tax collector, Um, which sounds kind of uppity and insulting. uh, But it's very there's very little difference between a prayer like that and saying there but for the grace of God, go I. Right. Thank you, God, that you did not put me in a position where I might be tempted to embezzle from my firm or put me in a position where I saw somebody who was super hot. and Now I'm thinking lustful thoughts or, you know, uh, put me in a position where I thought if I go to work for Rome, I can make a lot of money, even though I'm going to destroy the people's trust. Right. Thank you. You didn't put me there. Um, He then goes on to be to proclaim himself to be exactly the sort of person you want in your church. I give a 10th of everything. Nobody was required to give a 10th of everything, right? So he's like a super Pharisee. It's kind of like Abraham tithing to Melchizedek, like super Pharisee. I fast twice a week and nobody was required to do that either, right? So he's like terrific. Commentators then come in and say, oh, well, there's a rabbinic prayer where Jewish men say, thank you God that you didn't make me a Gentile or a slave or an ignoramus. And there is, in fact, it's still being said in Orthodox synagogues to this day. Um, and is it a great prayer? I'm not thrilled with it. Uh, but I can understand the prayer. It, it also shows up, by the way, in different formulations in pagan contexts. You know, thank you for making me a Roman. Um, and what what the rabbis explain is, it says, men would thank God for these things because it means that they have more Torah to follow. Because women don't follow all the Torah rules because we're exempt from time-bound commandments. We might be doing something like, you know, having a baby at the time, you know, and we might be busy otherwise. Um, and Gentiles don't have the commandments to follow. And people who are uneducated don't know how to follow them all quite as well as we do because we've got this sort of education. All right. So it's probably a false comparison. Tax collector standing off by himself and then all the commentators say because he's ritually impure, which he's not, is beating his breast and saying, be merciful to me, O God, a sinner. Okay. And then the last line is, it depends upon how you translate it. Um, and this man went down, he's referring to the tax collector, most English translations read, this man went down justified rather than the other. And the reason we read rather, the, the preposition in Greek is para, like parallel and paradox. It means to put something side by side. That's the dominant meaning. The reason we read it as antithetical rather than the other is because of a line that Luke throws in at the end of the parable. And therefore, the last will be first and the first will be last. That's a floating saying that you can end anything with. It's all over the place. I think in the original parable, and granted, this is just an act of historical imagination because I wasn't there. and I don't even know if Jesus told the parable. But I see Luke taking parables and then putting stuff at the beginning and putting stuff at the end, which I think is Luke trying to contra- constrain those parables and push them into one particular meaning. Um, I, I think what's happening here is, first of all, the tax collector, who I believe is justified, finds that justification in the Jerusalem temple, which would be counterindicative to Luke's view of the temple by the time we get up to the book of Acts. Second, um, Jews generally think about themselves, ourselves, as a community, um, so that we pray in the plural, like, forgive us our trespasses good jewish prayer uh the yom kippur liturgy clearly later than this but it's all in the plural forgive us for and then you list off all these different sins Uh, when i was a kid i know this is off topic but when i was a kid in in the conservative synagogue um for the old silverman moxer there's this line that says forgive us for our wanton acts and i didn't know what a wanton act was but i knew what a wanton was and i thought it had something to do with going to chinese food on yom kippur you know it's like weird anyway um so what happens? In the same way that we have communal guilt, one person does something wrong that impacts the entire community. Um, there's also communal benefit, which is, in fact, how the cross works. You know, through one person's act of fidelity, everybody else can tap into that. Right. That's how the cross works. Um, well, Jews talk about something called zahut avot, the, the merits of the father's. And the idea is that even if we're screwing up, we can say. But remember when Abraham was willing to offer his son Isaac on the altar, right? So even if we're screwing up, we can tap into the merits of the saints. This Pharisee's got more merit than he knows what to do with, because nobody else is fasting twice a week and tithing everything. And it may well be that those early readers thought of the: How does the tax collector get to be justified? How does he get to be in a right relationship with God? Well, of course, you begin by atoning. Um, You know, be merciful to me, O God, a sinner. You recognize your position and realize that you need God's help to stop you from sinning. But could he have also tapped into some of that Pharisee's merit? So how does that work at the end if they both go down and they're justified one alongside the other? Well, if I'm the Pharisee and my merit has gone to helping out this tax collector, then he's my responsibility and I got to watch out for him. Um, And if I'm the tax collector and I recognize the righteousness of this Pharisee fellow, then I might use him as a model. And I think they both go down together, both learning something from the other. Um, And if that parable works the way Luke wants it to work and the way Christians read it, then the takeaway from the parable is, thank God I'm not like that Pharisee, which is precisely what people are complaining about the Pharisee doing, you know, thank God I'm not like that tax collector. But then, well, that makes no sense, you know, thank God I don't tithe. Thank God I don't fast and, you know, give the money to Second Harvest Food Bank. Thank God I, I am a thief or a tax collector. So that's what Luke's redaction is leading us toward. But I don't think that's what the original parable is leading us toward. And moreover, by the time we get up to Luke 18, we've had a lot of quite darling tax collectors. We'll get another one in Luke 19 with Zacchaeus, the chief tax. I mean, you'd want to date them. Um, and we'd have a number of Pharisees whom we don't like at all. Um, you know, the Pharisees who were lovers of money and who were challenging Jesus and all that other stuff. But that's Luke. That's not how these people would have coded in a first century context. And I think, by the way, they're both caricatures. I think they're both funny. I don't expect to see a tax collector in the temple repenting, and I don't expect to see such a super Pharisee. He's over the top super Pharisee. I,
2: I think that's a fascinating, really compelling uh, reading of that passage, which I've I've never considered before, but is sounds really compelling it just strikes me as obvious that like well presumably after the you know the tax collector says have mercy on me a sinner presumably he should probably go do stuff the pharisee is is doing fasting and and tithing or or at least not not that not that he needs to but wouldn't it be great like obviously the luke it would be somewhat silly for luke to uh, i don't think this is what luke is suggesting the parable suggesting that the the tax collector doesn't or shouldn't do any more doesn't need to doesn't need to follow torah now because he just
4: says oh I'm merciful right right uh, that would that would be cheap grace
2: yes yeah, but
4: yeah. you know people do that all the time you come into the church and you say be merciful to me oh god a sinner and you put a 50 dollar bill on the collection plate and then monday morning you're off to sinning again because you know you can get a reboot the following sunday so that sort of confession with this kind of okay now i'm back in god's good graces well let's see how far i can push it the next six days happens in churches today. I expect it would happen back then. Um, and for Luke's predominantly Gentile audience, and I think I mean, certainly by the second century, the people reading Luke are Gentiles, um, who don't have Torah to keep them. I mean, not that all Jews follow Torah. I mean, you got the law, but then you got the problem. People aren't always following it. But at least Jews know what they're supposed to do, because you've got a law to tell you. What happens if you're law-free? So what's supposed to happen following Paul in the Gentile churches is that the Gentile having accepted the good news of Jesus is supposed to move from the realm of Adam into the realm of Christ and then like naturally do good things. I don't think people naturally do good things. Um, uh, Jews have a law that tell it what we're supposed to do. So at least we've got a prompt. How do you keep your Gentiles from just saying, yeah, I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm really sorry. And then you're a justified sinner. You go off and do whatever you want to do.
2: Christine Hayes has this funny phrase called robo-righteousness where she describes Gentile, or Paul's uh, Gentile believers as obeying the Torah so naturally that they, it's just kind of automatic. They don't need instruction, which I think is just a funny phrase. It just made me think of it.
4: Yeah. I'm not not sure I like (laughs) robo-righteousness, but I get the point. Probably hardwired, like your wiring gets changed. Uh, And and there's,
3: there's a significant amount of uh, research into the, the way that ritual and ritual practice and repeatedly doing something actually changes our uh, functional wiring, our cognitive wiring, such that we can do things very naturally to in order uh, without thinking about it. So, you, you know, you ride a bicycle. Uh, you you don't think about how to ride a bicycle once you've started, learned how to ride. Um, and I, I find this interesting when it comes to our interpretation of texts. So w- I think sometimes we get into that, uh, you know, Robo interpretation, we might uh, to, to use Christian Hayes' term, uh, facetiously, uh, where the, the texts like Luke eighteen or other other texts about the Pharisees become uh, so ingrained that there's only there can only be one interpretation, and therefore uh, that allow that interpretation then feeds back into the idea of the Pharisees, so it becomes a a a, a constant feedback loop because. Because this person is named a Pharisee, therefore they act like this. Uh, but they act like this because they appear in this story and they're named a Pharisee, and so you know it becomes a self-justifying uh, position. Um, but I'm interested in, in how that plays itself out in uh, our modern society. So during COVID, we've had repeated uh, quote um, scare quote indictments. Uh, against uh COVID Pharisees um whatever people mean by by that uh, presumably it just means that you should wash your hands and uh, social distance um but the, the it's an importing of a, a robo interpretation if you like into modern context uh, i suspect most people or at least here in australia uh, where we've much we' have quite a highly secular society and with very low, low biblical literacy the majority of people here in australia won't necessarily have any biblical understanding or a first century understanding or any understanding apart from a cultural understanding about what a Pharisee is. And yet the, the term Pharisee is used of those um, who wish to uphold COVID regulations. I'm interested in your reflections on, on, on that shift in terms of the shift from the biblical uh, and the ancient sources um, to our modern constructs of them.
4: Yeah. So Pharisee simply became a, a code word used by the Christian majority to talk about a particular worldview that forces you into something by laying up heavy burdens and is usually produced by people who are hypocrites, who have ulterior motives to get you to do what they want you to do. Um, in the United States, I haven't heard much about COVID and Pharisees, but I have heard a whole lot about COVID and Nazis. Um which is, which is an odd juxtaposition. Oh, they're like Pharisees, but they're also like Nazis. Um, and this is, anytime you bring Nazis in, it's going to go downhill from there anyway. Um, there are books that are very popular across the globe. Like, you might be a Pharisee if, or 10 Ways to Tell That You're a Pharisee, which is just another way of saying 10 Ways to Tell That You're a Hypocrite or 10 Ways to Tell That You're a Schmuck. Um, and I find that unhelpful. Um, Every once in a while, uh, certain other terms, which are more or less comparable, pop up. Um, I live in the American South. I live in Tennessee, where we have, um, in various pockets of the area, um, a a fairly strong anti-Catholic polemic. Um, So one hears, stop being so Jesuitical, uh, which in certain pockets of the United States doesn't mean just Jesuits, But all Catholics, completely obedient to the Pope, old-fashioned, stifling in terms of personal freedom and all that, it's exactly the same rhetorical function where you take a group from a larger group, make no distinction between the subgroup and the larger group and use that to say, that's precisely whom we are not. It's just, it's a nasty linguistic game. So that when the Pope said at this audience, stop using the word Pharisee as a synonym for hypocrites and as a synonym for self-righteous because it's insulting to Pharisees then and it's insulting to Jews today, particularly among people who can't tell the difference between uh, a group of folks who were part of a voluntary society in the first century and, and a bunch of people who happen to like bagels and lox today. Try not to make ourselves look good by making somebody else look bad. And let's try not to do that on the basis of labeling. Or we're going to have yet another generation of Christian children growing up finding out Pharisees or Jews and thank God I'm not like them. And that's really not very helpful. Um, I would also note that there's lots of anti-Christian teaching that I've heard in synagogue contexts, uh, and particularly among ultra-Orthodox Jews, which doesn't get much public play. But we've all got work to do in terms of stopping bearing false witness against our neighbors um, and, and negatively categorizing them in order to make ourselves feel better. I think we can do better than that.
3: I find it interesting that the the way that labeling wo- works in terms of our social categories, uh, and and what you're saying about the where a subgroup is identified as the as the whole superordinate group, um, I'm reminded of the in Bulgaria during World War II, as as the um the Nazi uh, here we go with Nazis again uh, as the Nazi. Uh, Sort of deportations were were starting to take place, and that, and in Bulgaria they took the they took the Gypsies first, and then they started coming after the Jewish population. And with the political apparatus, uh, the the Parliament managed to declare that all Jews in Bulgaria were Bulgarians first, uh, and therefore as Bulgarians they should be incarcerated within Bulgaria rather than being taken to Treblinka. Um, and it's one of those strange examples where. And it's a very rare example, I think uh, where the simple fact of relabeling a group, and in this case it's very um salient because of the the nature of the holocaust and and uh, the label of jew within that uh it actually it was of benefit rather than of detriment and yet so reflections from um Bulgarian Jewish families more recently is actually quite mixed. There was one interview which with the Jewish family said, we wish we had been labeled known as a Jewish, as Jews, and therefore we could have um, gone with the rest of our, uh, rest of our people. Um, and so this is it's one of those examples where I'm constantly going back and forth on it and the nature of identification. Henri Tajfel as well um, is a social psychologist who was identified as a French uh, Jew rather than as a Polish Jew, and so he was incarcerated in the West rather than Poland uh, over towards Treblinka,
4: It's the problem in part of how people who are not Jews and sometimes people who are Jews identify Jews Um, Jews were a people and quite a distinct people up until Moses Mendelssohn, who suddenly decided we were a religion. Um, And then so now you've got that. Can you divorce your ethnicity, which would be what Bulgarian or French or German or Polish or whatever? Can you divorce that from your religion? Well, if Jews are just a religion, the answer is, yes, you can. If Jews are a people, no, you can't. And how Jews self-identified then became a matter of not only what they might think, but what other people put upon them. So you have lots of assimilated Jews um, or people, you know, follow, following emancipation who convert to Protestantism or to Catholicism. And they're, you know, they're going to church and they're getting baptized, but everybody knows they're still Jews. So we kind of make people nervous because it's, it's difficult to figure out where to put us. Um, do we categorize as a religion? Do we categorize as an ethnic group? If we are an ethnic group, where are our loyalties based? Um, I've had people say to me, why don't you, because I do do identify as a Zionist in that um, I look at the land of Israel as the homeland of the Jewish people. I also look at it as the homeland of the Palestinian people. So I recognize that that's a problem. But I've had people say to me, well, you know, why don't you just go back to Israel? How how do I go back? It's my homeland in that, you know, the people who have been in the United States since 1776 might have come from France originally. But France isn't their homeland in that sense. So what do you do with the people who become difficult to categorize? And once that pops in and you don't know what box in which to put these people, that makes others nervous. So Jews are going to make other people nervous. The same thing with the Roma and the Sinti. I mean, you use the term gypsy, but the Roma and the Sinti, you know, what are they? Who are they? Are they part of us? They've been here for thousands of years. Are they not part of us? We're doing that today now in, in the United States with questions of immigration. Do you belong here? Well, what do you look like? Do you look like an American? And what does that look like?
2: Okay, so as a final cue. Um, I'm not sure uh, there
4: is a cue, by the way. I've become a cue apostate.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I'm probably, probably actually everyone on this podcast is probably a cue skeptic. Um, so as a final question, um, we want to hear about your article on preaching uh, in, the, in the Pharisees volume. Uh, and maybe could you leave us with a particular example that struck you um, while you were doing your research?
4: The article ranges fairly broadly. Uh, For churches on the lectionary, it looks on how Pharisees show up in lectionary readings and why the text with which they are paired could be improved. Um, It looks at uh, questions of art, uh, older stained glass windows, Jesus and the Pharisees, um, usually not very good. Um, It looks at how Pharisees show up even when they're not there in terms of preaching and teaching. Um, so that the uh, the lawyer in the parable of the good Samaritan, who asks who is my neighbor, um, suddenly becomes a Pharisee, and which Luke doesn't say. And then you have all sorts of junk brought on top of that. Um, I, I give several examples of negative, bad sermons that have talked about Pharisees, and had we had the had the person writing the sermon known something about who the Pharisees were, they would have been able to correct it. Um, and when I Write articles on preaching or give workshops on avoiding misunderstandings of early Judaism. Because if you get Judaism wrong, you're going to get Jesus wrong. If you get Judaism wrong, you're going to get Paul wrong. The image that I, I tend to leave people with is not an academic one, because I can talk, you know, from now till the Messiah comes, or comes back, if you prefer, and and all that anti-Jewish stuff is still going to be there. Um, to use Chris's language, it's hardwired. Um, so what I do is I leave them with a picture of of me and my kids. And I say, if you're preaching or teaching this stuff, I want you to picture my kids sitting in the front pew and don't say anything that will hurt this child who will identify with the Pharisee and will be identified with others as a Pharisee. Don't say anything that will hurt this child and don't say anything that will cause a member of your congregation to hurt this child. And if that's not sufficiently guilt-inducing, I want you to picture me in the back pew. Because I think the Christian tradition is really quite beautiful, and I think Jesus makes a great deal of sense in a first century Jewish context. I don't worship him as Lord and Savior, but boy, I think he was really smart, and I think he's worth listening to. He's a remarkably profound individual. If I can make Jesus look good without making Judaism look bad, then surely those who worship him can do the same, because he already looks good by definition. Um, Don't set up a negative foil to make yourselves look better, because it's bad preaching. Um, And it's not inspirational and it's not challenging. All that negative foil model does is say, thank God I'm not like those other people. And that's not a good message with which to come out of church. So revise the lectionary. Check your hymnal because there's still some icky stuff in there. Like that famous song, Lord of the Dance. I danced for the scribes and the Pharisees. They would not follow me, but they hung me on a tree. Um, Tra-la-la-la-la. Check your art. Check your children's books because there's stuff written for children about Pharisees that's just awful. Um, and you don't want to have like four-year-olds being turned into anti-Semites by well-meaning Sunday school teachers who don't know any better. Um, and, and then listing a bunch of other places where people might not have even thought to look because it's all over the place. But as the United States is becoming increasingly aware of our own um, racist history and we're dealing with this racial reckoning, And like names of streets, but the the names were from slave owners and, you know, what are we doing with this? I think it's about time for Christians to recognize a lot of this embedded anti-Judaism within the system. And you can't take everything out. But you can handle it with greater care. And you can explain it. And you can provide alternative readings so that we know where the problem came from originally because it's there in text. But we have theologians and ethicists and people like you who are interested in the subject matter to say, it's still there in the text, but the way we proclaim it and the way we teach it and the way we depict it can be done with love rather than hate and can be done benevolently rather than malevolently. And then I think we're moving a little bit closer to that kingdom of God that Jesus talked about.
1: Wow, that's beautiful. Thank you so much, AJ, for joining us and and sharing all of your wonderful insights with us. This has just been an absolute blast.
4: Thank you for your like really good questions. That was a delight. What fun (laughs) to talk with you.